Good afternoon. Well, I'm only a year late. I've apologized to your leadership for missing last year's uh, invitation. A year ago today, in fact, my father-in-law passed away right before, right before the uh, the meeting, and so I appreciate them covering. So here we are today. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Indeed, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And what we're going to talk about today is a most amazing creation of, of our Lord. And that is the human mind. Absolutely amazing. Study of the human mind is a vast frontier that's mostly uncharted. What little we do know, though, is Absolutely fascinating. The brain is an incredibly complex organization. It takes up only 2% of our body weight, but it consumes 20% of the oxygen that we breathe and 20% of the energy that we take in. It controls virtually everything that we as humans experience, including all of our movement, all of the senses that we have for, for sensing the environment around us, regulating our involuntary uh, bodily processes such as breathing and controlling our emotions. There's hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that occur every second in the brain. Those reactions underlie the thoughts, the actions, and the behaviors with which we respond to the stimuli around us. In short, the brain dictates the internal processes and behaviors that allow us to survive. The basic functional unit of the brain is called a neuron. And a neuron usually has multiple fibers on one side of the cell called dendrites. And they extend out on one side from the cell body. These processes usually branch out somewhat like tree branches, and they serve as the main apparatus for receiving input from other nerve cells. The cell body also gives rise to the axon. The axon is usually much longer than the dendrites. In some cases, an axon can be up to a yard long. The axon is the part of the neuron that is specialized to carry the message from the cell out to the other nerve cells. Near its end, the axon divides into many fine branches and they all have specialized swellings at the end. Those are called the axon terminals or presynaptic terminals. The axon terminals end near the dendrites of the other neurons to be able to communicate with them, to send their message out to the receiving part of the next cell. 
The dendrites of one neuron receive the messages sent from the axon terminals of the other neuron, and the site where an axon terminal ends near a receiving dendrite is called the synapse. An average neuron forms approximately 1,000 synapses with other neurons. It's been estimated that there are more synapses in the human brain than there are stars in our galaxy. Somewhere around 100 billion synapses in your brain. Now, to put that in perspective, if every synapse was worth a dollar, it would still take a lot of us to put our heads together to pay off the national debt. <laughs> Synaptic connections do not remain the same, but they're always changing, reaching out, creating new connections. Neurons form new synapses and they strengthen synaptic connections that are already there in response to experiences that we have in our life. When a new experience occurs, a new pathway is established of communication through our brain through these synapses. This dynamic change in neural connections is the basis of learning. When we learn something new, we create new pathways in our, in our mind. The more that experience occurs, the stronger the pathway becomes. The more the communication travels through that pathway, the more neural connections, synaptic connections are established. And over and over again, a habit is born. For good or bad, that's how a habit is born. Neurons communicate using both electrical signals and chemical messages. Information in the form of an electric impulse is carried away from the neuron cell body down through the axon out toward that synaptic part of, of the uh, cell to the synapse. But there's not actually a physical connection between the axon synaptic uh, terminal and the dendrite. Our brain is awash with chemicals. And those chemicals actually convert the electrical signal to send to the next cell, the dendrite of the next cell. And all of these chemical reactions that are going on allow us to think, allow our brain to, to work. This highly complex and very delicate process of communication is absolutely a testimony to the amazing design of the human body and of the human brain. One small deviation in the brain chemistry can affect the brain's function and thus influence our behavior. Damage to the structure of the brain will change the way that we can process information and in turn the way we can respond to our environment. The human body produces a variety of chemicals that affect our performance and our mood, God has virtually created us as a walking pharmacy. All of the things that we need to feel the way we should feel, to do the things that we should do, are there being produced in our body. When the body's chemistry is balanced, we can function properly and we can respond to, to life's challenges. 
But when these chemicals are out of balance, it can affect our feeling, our feelings of well-being, our strength, our endurance, and our general outlook on life. What may seem like a normal challenge may become overwhelming if your body chemistry is out of balance. And if that wasn't amazing enough, God created us with free will so that all those synaptic connections that are firing thousands in a moment can make decisions for ourselves. God created us, we might say, with varying degrees of free will. And what I mean by that is an infant may have limited free will and behave more from instinct rather than from a conscious will, but except in the case of maybe some developmental disability of some sort, we all begin to exercise our free will very soon in life. We eventually must decide whether we're going to serve God or not. In Luke, the 16th chapter, the 13th verse, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. God gave us a brain. He gave us the ability to use the brain. And He asks us to make a decision. We cannot avoid that decision. In Romans, the 6th chapter, the 16th verse, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. We have the ability, God has given us the ability, to choose life. So, what is our mind created for? What was it created to do? What's its purpose? In Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, the 13th verse, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. I believe that's the answer. Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 16th verse, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Romans 15.5 says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you... In, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, in the 20th verse, he says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So I believe we were created, this brain was put on our shoulders to glorify God. In Ephesians, the 2nd chapter, the 10th verse, we see something else that we're supposed to be doing with this brain. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Titus, the second chapter and the fourth verse, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. 
So we see that part of the reason here is to do good works. It's what God gave us a brain for. In Romans, the 12th chapter, the first verse first second and second verse, he tells us that we're to renew our mind. We're to create in ourselves, with the help of the Holy Spirit, a mind like Christ. So our mind is not supposed to stay the same. It is supposed to grow. It was, it's supposed to be renewed that we can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In the 13th chapter of Romans, the 14th verse, he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we are supposed to put on the mind of Christ. We're supposed to renew our mind. That's one of the purposes for the mind that he's given us. In Hebrews, the 6th chapter, in the 19th verse, we we find that we are to live in hope. That our mind is supposed to look forward to the future of what's to come. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, the third verse, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I am supposed to use my brain to hope, to look forward to what God has planned. In Ecclesiastes, the second chapter, and again the ninth chapter, he tells us that our minds were created in such a way that we can enjoy the life that we have, the simple pleasures in life. We are created to enjoy something as simple as eating. Why would God give us taste buds anyway? He could have just color-coded the food, right? But He didn't do that. It's something for us to enjoy. He gave us labor. He gave us a job. He gave us things to do. And we're to enjoy that. That's, that's how our mind should be working. He gave us relationships with other people. We're to enjoy those things. Especially, it says, the wife of our youth. Those are the simple pleasures that we should be enjoying with the mind that He has given us. So we see that God created our minds for a purpose. For us to glorify Him by becoming like Jesus. By living a life filled with hope. By living a life filled with obedient works. We have the free will to choose this path or not. Failing to live this kind of life will bring negative consequences in this life and certainly in that in eternity. Misusing our minds will lead to problems. Those problems will be physical, they will be spiritual, and they will be emotional. Not using our mind the way God created it to be used will cause problems. How is it that man goes about abusing his mind? Well, there's lots of ways. Here's a few. By being lustful. By being greedy. See, in Proverbs, the first chapter, the 19th verse, it says, So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. See, when we use our mind for greed 
It takes away our life. Negative consequences. First Timothy, the sixth chapter, the tenth verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And listen to this. They've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. If you live a life of greed, if that's how you use your brain power, there's going to be negative consequences. Some people abuse their mind with worry and, and stress. Matthew, the 13th chapter, the 22nd verse, Jesus says, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So allowing the worry and the cares of this world to occupy our brain power leads to us being unfruitful. The guilt of sin weighs heavily on us. Psalm, the 32nd chapter, the third verse, the, the psalmist writes this, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned to the drought of summer. He was oppressed by his own guilt. This had physical, spiritual, emotional consequences. His brain was consumed with the thought of the guilt that he carried. Psalm the 38, chapter the 4th verse, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. You ever met anybody that that described? I think I've seen some folks that that described. And I think I've seen some folks that are headed there, unfortunately. They're just allowing the burden of sin and the consequences of sinful uh, acts in their life to weigh them down. Disease, physical trauma, altering our mind chemically. All of these are things and ways in which man's minds are damaged. Disease sometimes can be as a consequence of sinful acts or sometimes um, as a consequence only of sin of others. Physical trauma, accidental or self-inflicted, is going to make a difference in the way our minds work. We can, use our, we can abuse our bodies and our minds by choosing to sin. The consequences of sin can be debilitating from venereal diseases, from alcohol, from drug addictions. These things alter our minds and impair its functioning so that our minds no longer work the way they used to. Proverbs 11.19 says, As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Galatians 6 and 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. 
For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We have a choice there of what we're going to sow, and we're going to reap what we sow. Romans 1 and 27, one of many examples of how sin is debilitating. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in the lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. People who pursue evil will pay the price in this life and certainly in the life to come, if not repented. One of the questions I was asked to address is this. Is mental illness connected to a lack of faith? And I would say the answer is definitely yes and no. What is mental illness? How would you define mental illness? Well, the most common definition that I found is is this, and I'll read it. Mental illness refers to a wide range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect your mood, thinking, and behavior. Examples of mental illness include depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, eating disorders, and addictive behaviors. Many people have mental health concerns from time to time, but a mental health concern becomes a mental illness when ongoing signs and symptoms cause frequent stress and affect your ability to function. A mental illness can make you miserable and can cause problems in your daily life, such as at work or in relationships. That was a definition from the National Institute of Health. And I saw something very similar in several other places. So basically, when your brain is not working the way it's supposed to, your behaviors are aberrant. Your behaviors keep you from being able to be normal, to be able to function, basically. Then it's considered a mental illness. And there's many types of mental illnesses. The DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's a publication by the American Psychiatric Association. This book is used as the reference guide for mental health professionals and medical professionals to make diagnoses of mental illnesses. And the new DSM-5 just come out not, not too long ago, so there's uh, different versions and, and they redefine some of these mental illnesses and recategorize them and whatever, but I counted about 250 disorders in this new version. That's a lot of ways that your brain may not work right. The diagnosis of a mental illness is not an easy thing necessarily. See, they have to mainly just rely on symptoms, on behaviors, on the historical, the background of those symptoms, how long have they lasted, how severe have they been. And that's usually what is used in order to, to make a diagnosis. You can't take an x-ray and see the break or the fracture in the bone and say, ah, it's a broken bone, we'll set it and forget it, right? Mental illness is much different than that. 
because we know so little about how the brain actually works, because we can't take a picture of what is broken, it's very difficult to be able to make a diagnosis except by just this person is acting like these other people that have these same set of symptoms and so we're going to call it this name. And that's, that's basically what happens. What causes mental illnesses? Well, probably about as many causes there are categories of mental illness. There's organic, excuse me, organic causes, structural damage to the brain. If you're riding a motorcycle without a helmet, you're probably going to experience that. We come from Missouri. Structural and chemical. If I put in a few extra chemicals once in a while because I like the way it feels for a few moments, I may have altered the chemistry of my brain for a long time. I may have changed the way my brain works perhaps for the rest of my life, which might not be as long as it would have been otherwise. Chemically changing our brain alters our behavior and our ability to think the way God created it. Diseases of all kinds will change our brains and affect the way it functions. It could be diseases that we've inflicted on ourselves. It could be diseases that we, we get from who knows where. Cancer, tumors, Alzheimer's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease. All of these affect the way our, our brain functions. So some people seem to perhaps have a genetic disposition for certain kinds of, of mental illnesses. It seems to run in some families. And again, we, we don't have any way to examine that and, and to say for sure. It just seems to be a pattern that's observed. Environmental factors can cause it, such as mercury or lead poisoning can change the way our brains work and the capability we have to think clearly. So those are the organic or the physical reasons. We also have some mental or emotional reasons for why our brains may not be working the way that we'd like. We can have defective thought patterns. We can be taught very ineffective or inefficient ways to respond to our environment. We can learn to be helpless. We can learn to be hopeless. We can learn to be depressed. We can learn lots of things that will cause us problems. Sometimes that learning takes place from watching others in our environment. Sometimes that learning takes place just from our own experiences. Experiences such as being in a war post-traumatic stress syndrome, something that we've experienced and we have reacted in such a way that it affects the way that we look at life and we react to life. We can have phobias that are based on nothing in reality. We can have anxiety over nothing that's happening that should make, make us anxious in our lives. So the way we think, the way that we view the world, the patterns, the thought processes that we've developed can lead us to mental illness.
So, is mental illness a result of weak faith? Well, in some cases it may be. In some cases it may be a consequence of sin and it may be a consequence of faithless living. But in others it's not. And it's difficult for us to tell. It may just be that you and the Lord are the only ones that are ever going to know the answer to that question. I don't want to be the judge of that for you. Another question I was asked to address, is mental illness something that just needs to be treated without passing judgment on the cause? Well, again, I would answer yes and no, depending on the situation. When I see a student in my office, and and I've been a high school counselor for several years, when I see a student in my office having a panic attack, I don't begin with trying to determine the guilt or innocence of the student's behavior leading up to the panic. I see a human being in crisis, and I respond by helping them deal with that pain and that suffering at the moment. Pervasive anxiety certainly can be classified as a mental illness, but I'm not able to see the heart of that student. I can't see all the history that led to that moment. And in my limited experience with the student, I have no way of knowing what physical or emotional causes might underlie that behavior. But I need to help them deal with it at the moment. When I see a student who has signs of depression, and I see that often, I try to determine the severity, and then I encourage the family to seek help. Often the stress of a dysfunctional family over long periods of time have contributed to the problem. At least that's my estimation. I've worked with abused children, those who have abused themselves with drugs, but regardless of the cause, they need help. When I see a brother sin, I have the God-given obligation to help that brother to repent. But when I see a brother with signs of mental illness, passing judgment on the cause is neither productive or, in my estimation, loving. I have no way to know the cause for sure. I am instructed to bear my brother's burdens, so how should I react? Well, how would I react if my brother fell from a ladder and broke his leg? Well, I'd comfort him, and I'd get him some help. I wouldn't pass him by and berate his judgment for being on the ladder. I'd also try not to set my brother's leg myself. If there was a hospital nearby, I'd be taking him to the hospital. I would be limited in my ability to help, and I would recognize that fact. Although there's much that mankind does know about the brain, it's possible in many cases, let me rephrase that, although there is much that mankind does not know about the brain, it is possible in many cases to assist patients with symptoms of mental illness and then to search for the underlying causes that can be treated. Trying to help the patient regain some sense of control and normalcy in life usually precedes the effort to work on the root cause. When someone comes in presenting mental illness, 
We try to treat the symptoms first. Try to get them to a place where they can understand and work and fit back into to life as best as they can. It doesn't mean we ignore the root cause. Just it means we, we treat the person first and then we look to help them with the cause. What are the types of treatment that, that are there for mental illness? Well, the next two or three minutes is not going to be sufficient for me to, to go into that in detail, but there's basically two, two different approaches. One is a medical-based or a psychiatric approach. usually involves uh, pharmaceuticals. And those pharmaceuticals are usually psychoactive drugs that help the brain work the way it should, help those synapses to have the right chemicals that flow through so that the communication goes between the, the brain cells the way it's, it's supposed to. And in many mental illnesses, that's not working right. There's side effects to those, and some aren't very effective. There are many that are improved by that kind of treatment. Surgery is possibly needed in some cases if it's a tumor, if it's epilepsy, um, as extreme case. Sometimes surgery is, is used for that. Certainly, if there's been brain trauma, damage, surgery might be uh, needed. Um, electrical shock has been used for all different kinds of things, including depression. So there's physical or medical ways, and then there's also the psychological or the counseling methods. There's a lot of theories that, that uh, underlie these methods, but I believe some of them are very consistent with a godly view. Others, not so much. Many therapists will combine medication with the counseling. The medication to take the edge off to to suppress those symptoms to the point where they can reason, where they can function well enough to work on uh, the counseling. Some focus on changing thought patterns and thereby changing behaviors. And I think this is consistent with Romans 12 that we just read a few moments ago. Some look for the underlying traumatic feelings or memories that need to be addressed, dealt with, in order to see the world correctly. In the case of mental illness, it's difficult without training for most of us to know how to help that change process. Some people have the training and ability to understand how to help. Many of us do not. Parents often will call my office and ask me for um, therapy for their children. And I, I have to tell them that I am not a therapist. I can recognize a few of the symptoms. I know when it is you need to go to somebody but uh, I'm not a therapist and I don't play one on TV and I don't want to play one with my brothers or sisters. A question I was asked to address about medication is taking medication for mental illness wrong for a Christian? Well, again, my answer is yes and no depending on the situation. Am I taking medication to help me function properly and behave like God wants me to? Or am I medicating to cover the symptoms of sin for which I refuse to repent? Perhaps the individual and God are going to be the only ones who can make that judgment. But that's the question in my mind that needs to be asked. 
Would you pass judgment on a Christian who needs insulin for diabetes? Maybe they've lived a lifestyle of their own choices that caused them to have that. Would I want to withhold insulin because I think they caused their own problem? Another question I was asked to address was, do we rely too much on medication to help us manage our moods, thoughts, and behaviors, or not enough? Well, let me say this. God's Word is filled with prescriptions. Those prescriptions are to help us change our outlook on life, to give us hope, to renew our minds, to set our thoughts straight. The Holy Spirit lives within us if we're a Christian and helps us with our infirmities. If we're trying to substitute the God-given prescriptions for man-made medication in order to numb our psychological pain and ignore our need to repent and ignore our need to change our lives, then I would say yes, we're using it in the wrong way. We're relying on meds for the wrong reason. If, however, we are using medicine to help bring some order and control to life, a life that allows us to live a productive life for the Lord in harmony with His teaching, then I would say no. We're doing our best in faith in the sight of God to remedy the situation we're in. Would you deny a wheelchair to a lame man who wants to assemble with the brethren? I wouldn't want to do that. What if he couldn't walk because he was in an accident while he was driving drunk? His fault, sin. I still wouldn't want to deny a wheelchair to that man to come and be a part of the assembly. The bottom line for me seems to be that I'm not in a position to see all of what God sees to make judgments about the motives and intents of the heart of another. It's my job to help my brother repent of sins that I can see and to encourage, uplift, and admonish him. And more than this, I'm to love him. Mental illness exists for a variety of reasons and is present to some degree, probably in all of us at different times of our lives. The causes are often complex and often unknown. I've seen brothers and sisters with brain tumors that before it was diagnosed, I had no idea why they were acting that way. God forbid that I would have punished them. I did found out otherwise. I've seen brothers and sisters with Alzheimer's. I've seen brothers and sisters with schizophrenia, with depression, with obsessive compulsive disorders, with anxiety disorders with eating disorders, with bipolar disorder, with alcoholism, and with drug addiction. I've seen my brothers and sisters with all of those things. I'm to love them all. And I cannot pretend to understand all of the reasons why they behave the way they do. When mental illness becomes debilitating, when it's beyond a person's ability to cope, I want to encourage them to get help. I want to support their efforts to bring sanity and self-control back to my brother and sister. Thank you.